Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. My name is Chuck Andaris. Last week, we had part one of two parts about cooperatives with Kelly Maynard. We talked about the importance of group work, goals of co-ops, and questions to ask before getting started. This week, we get into the role of feasibility studies, grants and loans to get started, what kinds of businesses are best suited for co-ops, and more on the principles that cooperative businesses can teach us. Let's get to it. How do you get money to like get things going at the beginning, pay for feasibility? Um, the Value Added Producer Grant Program, are people familiar with that grant program? It's USDA. I've seen that used very effectively to help fund feasibility studies and business plans. What role do feasibility studies play in the startup process? They serve a number of functions. I mentioned creating a business as a co-op versus another structure doesn't necessarily make it go, right? So um, as much as we might want that to be true. So we get questions, you know, well, what's really the difference? You know, we hear about feasibility studies and business plans and market studies, and I won't, you know, go into great detail about all the differences here, but I think that part of what's important is the exercise of trying to capture on paper, you know, what it is that the business will do, the, you know, the value proposition, forcing yourselves to do some market research, right? Like what is going on in this space right now? What do we know is working? What is not? What might be challenges for us? And also, you know, you know, whether it's contracting it out or, you know, working with folks to work through it, really laying down your best guess financial picture. So we call this a pro forma. And it's basically, you know, the, the kind of financial predictions or projections for the, the picture you've painted in words about the business, right? And, you know, with that question of, you know, do the numbers pencil out? Do we think we can make this business, you know, break even? So then what? You have some spreadsheets. What do you do with those? I mean, I think that just developing the pro forma can feel intimidating in and of itself, but it helps you answer a number of questions. So, you know, groups will often, as they're incorporating and, you know, getting down to the the nitty gritty of, you know, writing bylaws and things, you know, one of the first decisions they have to make is, you know, how much does it cost to become an owner and the, you know, a member owner of this co-op? What is that? We call it, you know, equity buy-in, that equity payment. And there are a lot of different ways that groups go about, you know, a lot of different factors that groups weigh in terms of setting that. But one, one really important piece of that should be, well, what kind of equity does the co-op need to get going? And different businesses need different amounts, right? So, you know, some co-ops can kind of start to move things, get things going with fairly little cash, you know, but if I want to start, you know, a cooperative grocery store, you know, or a cooperative slaughterhouse, right? Those are infrastructure heavy businesses that need a fair amount of money or capital up front. So the feasibility helps inform both like what either, you know, what each member should pay and or how many then how many members you want to try try to get, right, to get some of those, meet some of those initial equity goals. And then also, you know, if you're going to consider, you know, outside sources of money to get things going, you know, loans, you know, certainly you can use you can use grants, but if you, you know, if you need additional money than what the members can provide these, you know, financial institutions are going to want to 
to see, right, that you've done the work of this pro forma and laying out the vision of the business and that you've done some research about, you know, the market and things like that. So sometimes you just certainly the exercise of pulling it all together is very valuable. And then it's just almost a prerequisite for approaching a bank or some other sort of lending institution should be that be something that you need to do. And to go back to the the first question, you know, everyone has different approaches just based, you know, personality and otherwise for how they go about starting projects. Some people very meticulously, you know, plan the whole thing out and then go. Some people are more comfortable just making it up as they go, if you will. And, Hmm. you know, when you, when you do that as an individual, right, maybe you, you know, you could call it risky or whatever, but you're, all you're putting at risk potentially is the money that you put into it, right? But when you are with this group and everyone is putting some money on the table, you want people to feel, have some level of confidence about the risk that they're taking, right? With that investment. Yeah, the stakes are higher. The stakes are higher because it's not just your money and your time, right? It's a group of people's money and time. And so, you know, this this kind of pre-work, you know, forces you to, to th- think through a little more methodically, you know, A, are you all on the same page about some of the, the basic ideas of the, you know, the business? And have you, have you stopped and done some of the work to think through, you know, how risky the proposition is? How, how likely might it be to pay off and in how long? And part of that is just like that piece of getting people on the same page about, you know, their expectations going in, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, people start caught businesses that, you know, after a few years, they don't fly. And people still are upset at that point, right? But if they, if they feel like it was, you know, they did the work that they could initially, it was based on the, you know, sound information that that was available, and they were all kind of on the same page, less likely for people to be really angry about it than if they, you know, they felt like they knew, they knew the risks going in, and they were, they were all on the same page about it. Yeah, I see how that ties really well into the group work aspect of it too, where, you know, if if the group comes to a consensus about what they're doing and works together to make their plan cooperatively, then there's not there's not one person to get real upset at. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> because they they all had their input, they all were heard and their ideas were all incorporated into a plan. Right. And sometimes plans fail, but that's that's just how right. it goes. And I and I do think too, you know, it's very common for the the members of this, you know, kind of what you might be calling the steering committee, you know, the the founders of this of a potential co-op to shift, right? So that you might start with, you know, maybe you start with a small group four or five and then they were able to bring in a few more and then over the course of time some of those people drop off and maybe others come on in part of the reason that happens is that as you refine the business idea and, and, and do the research about the numbers and, and get a reality check about, okay, this is what the market is right now. Even if we can really try to push the boundaries of that and what we think like farmer pay prices could be things like that, you know, there'll be, there may be people who say, you know what, like 
this picture just doesn't look good enough for me. So I, I, I'm tapping out. And so it's also a, you know, at an individual level, I mean, we talk about the group work, right? But everyone also is trying to make individual bis- uh, decisions for themselves and their, you know, their farm businesses. And that's also, you know, that's part of it, right? You're, when you're in a co-op, you're, <laughs> you're, you're weighing the interest of your individual, your, your personal business, your front, you know, family farm or whatever with the interests of the co-op. And, you know, if the co-op is, is not for you, again, you know, it's okay. Like that's, that's not a value judgment <laughs> on you as a person. And so, and, but people need the, need information, right. To be able to make those decisions. And, you know, if, if you put together these projected financial statements that we call the pro forma, and it's like, you know what, in order, you know, based on what we know market prices are and what we think, you know, even with very like streamlined operations, this is like the most we could pay farmers. And someone could say, you know what, that's just like, doesn't meet my cost of production. It's just not going to work for me. And then they can take the decision, make the decision that's right for them before they've thrown in a bunch of money and time or, you know, other things. So it's all about enabling people to make really good decisions. You can structure loan programs where you're, if members are, have the capacity to do so, they loan the co-op money and there's, the terms are agreed upon between the two. There are banks that, are, that focus on work with co-ops, so credit unions is a place to start if there's a local credit union. Uh, Shared Capital Cooperative is a, a cooperative lender based out of Minneapolis, but they work all over the country. CoBank, the National Cooperative Bank, um, they're a much bigger entity, but they, they focus on work with co-ops. And then this preferred stock is one mechanism of getting outside investment without offering people votes. Once you're up and running, there is another type of value-added producer grant for implementation. It's a larger amount of money. The local food promotion program, LFPP, is another USDA grant um, that folks I've seen folks use to help sustain operations, help with operations. By local, by Wisconsin is a Wisconsin-specific grant. There may be grant programs in your states through departments of ag or small business development centers. Compeer Financial has like a, a fairly small, like I think it's maybe $5,000 like startup grant that they, can, that they will offer folks. Um, so there are ways to, to help fund getting things off the ground. Do you have any stories that can illustrate either one way or the other a co-op that used those grants and loans to good effect and and found a good balance or that didn't have enough solid footing to keep going? Sure. So the co-op that that I worked for for a number of years and is where I really got my start in this whole cooperative business world when I started working for them I you know I don't think I could have articulated for you what a co-op was versus any other business and when they got going they had some USDA grant funding for what the USDA calls socially disadvantaged producers which is not a term I like but meaning you know immigrant minority farmers and you know part of the the goal with that funding was to offer technical assistance to a you know farming demographic that had had very little specialized technical assistance for them. Uh, we worked with a lot of Hmong um, and Latino farmers, and um, and that's who were members of the cooperative. And 
you know, we did a lot of really exciting things with that money. And we also, and it wasn't just for the co-op members, right? It was for the broader community. And we also used some of it to help do the, the work of developing the co-op side of the picture, right? They, the, the bigger picture goal with that group had been to market product together. They were all direct market farmers by and large, and we're trying to reach some you know wholesale markets. And, you know, part of this was certainly my greenness at the time. You know, we didn't, elaborate a feasibility study early on and i think there were definitely some other factors at play but you know a couple years into it really tried to lay out the financial picture of okay um because we got the great we got these this some of this funding for three years and then we didn't get it anymore and at that point the co-op was making sales and so it's like from a sales standpoint what does it take to make this co-op run on its own you know what's your sales number to be able to support a staff person and I just I think that because we didn't really start with that picture there were a number of reasons I think in this particular case we had been able to use a lot of the grant money to have interpreters we you know when we were doing all of the trainings we provided interpretation and it was awesome Um, and we also like our co-op meetings like needed interpreters but that's expensive right and so then in the absence of the grant, it became harder for the co-op members just to actually communicate effectively with each other. Um, and so I think that they're obviously in hindsight, and now that I've learned so much more about co-ops since I worked with this first one, you know, I think that we just we didn't have a really real aspect of the true costs of the co-op operating. And so even with then finally, you know, making sales and getting sales to, you know, a reasonable level, the staffing that it supported was still so minimal and it ultimately turned out to just not really be enough to hold things together. And so, you know, I don't have as uh, as intimate an experience with a co-op that used grants really effectively. I mean, I, I know some some stories out there, certainly there's there's case studies out there, but what I would say is that the, you know, so many of the co-ops that people in, you know, the local regional food, organic food world that people are wanting to develop these days, right? They're they're trying to push back against the bigger structural issues that have, you know, given us the the big the food system that we have today, right? And so there are big structural issues at play. And so in that case, it can feel like, well, we're not just going to be driven purely by market forces because like we feel like the market is messed up. And so therefore like an infusion of money, like grants or crowdsourcing, you know, can help us push back right against what we feel like are these structural things that shouldn't be what they are. And it's completely okay when you do this, some sort of feasibility study process, a business planning process where you lay out a vision for three to five years of financials, it's absolutely fine to have grants in that picture and, you know, certainly loans and other things. But part of that exercise, just it helps give you the reality check of, you know, let's assume we get grants for a couple of years, which can even in itself be a dangerous assumption, right? But what is, where do we need to get all along the way in terms of other financial metrics so that we're not fully reliant on those grants? I think that some of the co-ops that I've, I've worked with over the last couple of years who find themselves in a bind didn't really ever create a financial picture where grants weren't part of it. And it's, it's risky to assume with all, you know, as wonderful as all the different grant programs are that are out there, you can't assume that you'll get one or the, the amount that you'll get. And so maybe it's that you have, you know, having some contingency plans, I think, for what it looks like if you don't get it. And I think that often what happens is people don't get a grant and they say, well, now what? <laughs> 
And so I think it is thinking through, like, if we got the grant, we could do these things. But without the grant, this is what the picture looks like. I think part of that is maybe in those startup years, you're, you, you know, using some of those funds to cover some of the core operational pieces, right? But maybe the grant is used to great effect for some innovative marketing, trialing, you know, a, a new type of CSA program or something like that, right? To see if it works for you, but to, to just use grants to cover like the basic operational needs of the co-op is where you potentially run into the biggest problems and where it's the most risky. And I'll also say, you know, with the loan piece, everyone has different tolerances for, for debt, right? Emotional and otherwise, right? Some people just abhor debt. Some people are like, oh no, I know how to manage debt really well. And so again, I think, you know, first of all, if you're going to get a loan, you'll need to be able to paint some sort of financial picture for the lender with that pro forma. And also, I mean, it, it's really disappointing, right? If you have a really, if you feel like you have a really great idea, there's a group of people that are passionate about it. And then you do the work of the feasibility study. And then what it tells you is the numbers just don't pan out. <laughs> um, and part of that has to do with like, well, it would require us getting this amount in loans. So then you're not just covering operations, the cost of operations, you're covering the cost of repaying those loans, right? And so if a cooperative idea requires taking on a fair amount of debt, then the financial picture has to be even better, right, to be able to repay that debt. I worked with a group in the last two years that got a value-added producer grant and used it for a feasibility study. And in the end, it didn't, <laughs> the numbers didn't paint a good picture. But, you know, and of course, that's very disappointing, but also it meant that then they didn't get halfway down the road with lots of money invested and high levels of payments that they owed before they couldn't make it, right? So all that is to be said, I think, you know, a variety of financing mechanisms can be put into play in the early stages. I feel like grants can play a key role in very early stages and on an ongoing basis on things that are not central to operations, right? Grants are great to be used, special projects, right? Trialing things with community, trialing a marketing idea, but relying on them for the, for the fundamental operations of the co-op is where you get into trouble. In that financial, startup financial space, um, trying to do everything through grants, trying to get a lot of donations, crowdfunding, etc., and not figuring out ways that, that members make the investment members bring in the loans and build that into the, their financial plan. I think being unrealistic about what it takes to operate the co-op and what the value that the co-op can provide um, and or sales it can make, it's hard. It's hard to, to think, have a, be really passionate about an idea and say, you know what, it doesn't actually pencil out. Or we cannot, between member investment and a little bit of loans, we can't, we, we're not going to be able to get it off the ground. So really thinking about, instead of spending a lot of time thinking about grant money and, and crowdfunding, what are the ways that we can realistically build something over time that's, that's financially sound? Are there kinds of farm businesses that lend themselves to cooperative structures better than others? I mean, I would say that, so for example, there are some farms that, they do some combination of, you know, CSA, farmer's market, 
maybe some restaurant sales. With that market mix, like they're meeting their financial goals, they're doing what they need to do. If they can rely on like direct marketing to make themselves go, then it's like they don't really need anyone else, right? They're, they've reached their sweet spot. They're good. So farms where it really makes sense to pool resources in some way. Is that pooling product? Is that pooling money to have some sort of common facility, right? Like it doesn't make sense for every farm to have their own slaughter facilities, for example. And so something where like they need a resource in common and it doesn't, it's not very like cost effective or efficient for every farm to have their own. Those are things that motivate people to come to the table. But I'd also say that in the same vein of making a business a co-op doesn't necessarily suddenly make it viable. If a farm is in terms of its, you know, scales or efficiencies, how it's doing things is not viable, it might, you know, it might not be a, a good candidate for being a member owner of a co-op, right? Unless the co-op can give them the market and the resources or, you know, facilities they need to reach that viability place. And I will say that, you know, a co-op, it requires an investment really of time more than anything, but also of, you know, a financial investment. And so a business that doesn't have the ability to do that, again, not a value judgment, right? But just maybe they should think about, is this right for me right now? Um, because I don't have the time to put in and or I don't have the financial ability to, to invest. Otherwise, I think you know, people get very creative with cooperative structures. I've mostly talked about producer-owned co-ops that market together. That's what we see most commonly in agriculture. Of course, you have you know, farm supply co-ops, but we're hearing more and more about uh, worker-owned farms. And so you know, a single farm right, that is owned by a group of people as the employees of that farm, that's the way ownership is defined. And then, you know, maybe they're, and however they're marketing, they're marketing. So I think that a lot of types of farms can play valuable roles in getting co-ops started and being member owners of co-ops. It comes back to asking yourself a few questions about the position of your farm and the kinds of resources or markets you need to be successful, the time and other investments that you can put into it, and how much do you want to be part of this group endeavor versus work things out for yourself. Asking yourself that honest question of, is the group enterprise right for me, right? Um, am I willing to be part of the group process and compromise? I heard someone say once that if you have a small vision, you can do it all yourself. But if you have a larger vision, then you have to learn to work with other people and delegate and manage and cooperate. So I wonder maybe if, you know, if you're a small or mid-sized farm and you're your vision is just to to have a farm and support your family and and feed your community. You know, you wouldn't necessarily need to work with other farmers to make that happen, but maybe if your goal is to build a different kind of food system, maybe then it's a it's a tool to do that. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, and reach markets. Oftentimes, you know, I don't know of many co-ops that form to do just direct marketing, for example, right? So a lot of the ideas that some, there are markets that are hard to reach as an individual farm, but if you had more product because you were in, in cooperation with a group, you know, whether that's more volume of one product or a larger array of, of products, then you can access customers better, you know, and also there's certain types of marketing that, I mean, all marketing takes time, but that a lot of farmers, some farmers love to do the marketing piece. Some farmers really are just, they just want to 
arm, right? <laughs> we hear that a lot. And so right. um, if you're, if you're in that group and, and you're, and you say, you know, like I, I need to access the markets so I want to access with my product. I can't do it alone. And I don't want to be the one who's like making all the phone calls and doing delivery and following up on payments, you know, all those pieces that are part of it, you know, yeah. Then if you can be in cooperation with folks and have a staff person or team who, who does that for you, that's great. You know, that then, then you're living the dream. <laughs> But yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of farms that find their sweet spot on their own and that's hats off to them because that's not, that's not easy either. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I don't want what I said earlier either to sound like a value judgment that it's like a small vision. It's just, yeah, I, I don't think I worded that quite right because I don't want to minimize what it takes and, and the importance of, of an individual farm, but it's just like to create large systemic change, you know, maybe having a cooperative business isn't necessarily, I mean, it's not the only way to do that, but it's, um, you know, part of, part of the puzzle maybe. Absolutely. And I think that there's ways, you know, certainly, um, there are cooperative associations, right. That, so as an example, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned farmers union before, but right. So they're actually incorporated as a cooperative and, you know, we don't necessarily think of farmers union as a business, but you know, they, the way in terms of their, their structure and the democracy that they, they nurture and, in, in, in terms of their structure and, you know, they have this, you know, ad, you know, a lot of what they do is, is policy and advocacy. Right. And so that, that system level thinking about the system and how it serves farmers and how to shift it to better serve farmers. Right. So, and they're, and they're doing it within a cooperative structure. And so, you know, co-ops don't just, you know, we, we see them, the mo- you know, playing these like marketing kinds of functions so much in, in agriculture, but there's, there's room for other types of co-ops that perform other roles in shaping that food system for sure. Do you want to add anything else before we wrap up? I think what I would add is that, and this is not a totally new or profound thing to say, but, and farmers are, you know, people are used to trying to do things in community, right? Like I think people who live in rural areas, farmers, you know, we, we're, we're used to trying to do projects with our neighbors, projects with our communities. And I think that a cooperative organizing process, whether it results in a cooperative or not, there are a lot of ways to work cooperatively to great effect whether or not what we would call a cooperative business comes out of it. And I think that we shouldn't diminish those kind of cooperative group efforts, right? Um, maybe they, maybe they aren't really around money at all, right? Because I also feel like people's participation in, in group efforts like those is also where they learn the skills that they can apply in a setting like a cooperative business or in civic life, right? Like this being an effective member of a group, knowing how to navigate conflict, facilitating a group through decisions, effective communication. All of these are things that are super helpful as humans. And, yeah. and I think that the, the work of, of like fleshing out a cooperative idea and, and continuing to be in, in, in cooperation with a group of people, whether that, that business idea launches or not, has tremendous value, right? And, those, and those, those groups may be the groups that shift major things in the food system, right? It's not just going to be big name cooperative businesses and others. 
So any work that you can do in community that, that serves you and serves others and, and, you know, and feels worthwhile, it's worth coming together around. And whether that results in an actual cooperative business or not, um, you can still, you know, we work with groups all the time that they don't end up becoming a co-op and that's okay. Like we've been able to shepherd them through some, you know, early group work and they can carry that on for themselves. Right. So the goal isn't cooperative businesses for the sake of having cooperative businesses. The goal is viable farm businesses and a just food system. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's different ways to get, to get there, but cooperative businesses are a tool in the toolbox. Right. And I think being an, a member owner in a co-op and part of that process, you learn a tremendous set of skills that you can apply in other places in your life. We, we hear from people who go from that to then running for elected office, right? Or running for you know school board or town board or, and um, they learn those skills in co-ops. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks again to Kelly Maynard from the University of Wisconsin Center for Cooperatives. After this week, we'll only have episodes every other week, but we've got some exciting stuff coming up this summer and we'd love to have you participate in it, including more podcast episodes, video content, and interactive virtual field days. So stay tuned in this feed, on our social media at Moses Organic on all platforms, and on our website, mosesorganic.org. Thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. Moses educates farmers in sustainable and organic agriculture. Resources for Moses include the Organic Broadcaster newspaper and the guidebook for organic certification. Call the Organic Answer Line to ask a specialist about organic farming and certification at 888-90-MOSES or visit mosesorganic.org ask. Our show is sponsored by Gemplers, a family-owned online farm and home store providing farmers with commercial-grade tools, equipment, and supplies for the toughest outdoor tasks. Free shipping on orders of $50 or more with only clothing and footwear, including brands like Patagonia, Keen, and Carhartt. Shop gemplers.com organic for commercial-grade products for your organic farm. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. Please rate and review our show in your podcast app. It helps people find the show. Thanks again for listening. Can you do crazy, Dad?